0: And draw your attention back to Ephesians 5 this morning. And although we will not be looking at all these verses, I think I'd like to read Ephesians 5 1 through 17 this morning as we begin. So listen to God's holy word, inspired, uh, inerrant, and from the, the pen of Paul. Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness, And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, Awake, O sleeper, and rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully, then, how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our gracious Lord, our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity that we have, Lord, to come before you this morning to unite our hearts in praise and thanksgiving, to to unite our hearts in worship. Lord, we pray that our worship would be acceptable to You. Lord, we pray that You would just uh, cause the Holy Spirit to to work here this morning, enlightening His Word to us this morning, Lord, to, to give us greater understanding of what amazing things, what miraculous things that You have done on behalf of sinners. Lord, we thank You for the work of Christ. We thank you that we are in Christ. Lord, that we have been redeemed, we have been uh, brought out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of of light. Lord, we thank you for the light of your word. Lord, we thank you for the work of the Holy Spirit. And we just pray that you would be with us here this morning, that your presence would be known, Lord, as as we seek to adore you and worship you here. Bless your word this morning, Lord. It's in your precious and holy Son's name that we ask these things. Amen. Well, we find ourselves this morning in the fifth chapter of the epistle to the Ephesians, uh, where Paul, uh, in this whole epistle, uh, has been led by the Holy Spirit to write uh, this letter to this church here at Ephesus, and then, by extension of that, uh, to all local bodies, throughout uh, throughout the world. Uh, this was most likely a letter that was written to the Ephesians and then would have been circulated among all of the churches around that and then just gone out from there. But it's regarding uh, the truths of the Christian faith and then how that truth affects us in our, our daily lives. How these things, these truths, these doctrines that he, he deals with in the first part of this epistle how them becoming a reality in our lives just produces a a radical change in the life of of the believer Uh, the truths uh, he has revealed to us stretch all the way back if you look in Ephesians 1 all the way back to before the foundation of the world this is a most amazing and miraculous thing We find the doctrine of what lies behind the salvation of all who are brought to faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, We find that they have been brought from death to life. Uh, We learn that the Spirit has been given to them and and has sealed them, been given as the down payment or the earnest or the, the guarantee of the inheritance that we still have waiting for us. We've been given some of this now, but there's much more to be given. So the Holy Spirit has been given to us as the seal or the guarantee of that until we receive the complete, completed version of it. We've seen revelation in, in this epistle to the Ephesians, We've seen revelation of the mystery and purpose of God in bringing salvation to both the Jew and the Greek, making them fellow heirs and members of the one body, members of the same body. Uniting them together. And we have that sevenfold unity that we looked at in Ephesians. One body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. This unity that unites two groups that were at great odds with one another. Making them one. We see evidence of this truly radical change in the lives of these believers. This is something that is completely contrary to the natural state of fallen man to be able to be at unity with anybody else. We don't find that to be natural in and of the flesh. This is something that must be done through a change that is wrought in fallen man. Something must take place. The sinner... Dead in trespasses and sin has been made alive. That there's no more powerful display, Paul says, of the power of God than the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that is the same power that he works in us when he raises us from death to life. This is a, a most amazing miracle. And as we've been making our way through this epistle, we found here in the second half, chapters 4 through 6, Paul has been showing us the effects of this new creation, hasn't he? Um, And I I trust that we'll see even more this morning how this new life is in complete opposition to that life that we had before, that life that was from the flesh. We recently looked at Ephesians 4.22. It's probably been three or four weeks ago now where the apostle tells us to put off the old self and put on the new. Uh, That new self that belongs to the the life that Christ has given us. In Ephesians 4.22, he says, put off your old self, which belongs to your former life, former manner of life, and is corrupt through deceitful desires. And then he goes on in Ephesians 24 to tell us to put on the new man, the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. These two things, the old man and the new man, are at complete opposite ends. They're completely polar opposites of each other. Completely different. And as we looked at last time we were here, which was the week before last, the start of chapter 5, we looked at uh, that Christ is our example of what it looks like to live and having put on the new man. He tells us to to walk in love as Christ loved us and gave Himself for us. This is our example. And it's through His work that we've been saved. It's through Him that we've been made alive. Brought from death to life. Through Him and through His life that we've been made into a new creation. And we're to live to Him who has given life to us. New life, this new life has produced within the believer, by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, a new spring, if you will, a new, a new set of desires, um, new things that we love, new things that we hate. But it's, there's a new spring, there's a, there's a, a new source of life within us. Paul's going to bring this out a little bit this morning even more as we look uh, further into Ephesians 5. And he's going to put a contrast there once again between darkness and light. Darkness and light. Paul begins in Ephesians 5 in verse 3, where we're going to start this morning having already looked at verse 1 and 2. Paul tells us, "...but sexual immorality and all impurity..." or covetousness, must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. Paul is telling us that these things are inconsistent or incompatible with the character of Christ and those who have been made alive in Christ. Saints, which is what he says here, must not be named among you as is proper among the saints. Saints. These sins are not to be found among you, not even to be named among you. He's telling the people that he's writing this to, you are saints, these these Christians. He's already said back in Ephesians 1, to the saints who are in Ephesus, it's those that have been set apart, those who have been called, those who have been made holy. This is who he's, he's writing to. And he says, saints of God, not, and, and not this false notion of saints. Not this, this Roman Catholic idea of the sainthood. Where one can achieve and, and, and reach this by proclamation of the church, this level of sainthood. That's opposed to what the Bible teaches us that saints are. Saints are those who have been set apart. The biblical sense of what a saint is, is one who has been set apart. One who has been called. One who has been made holy. The language should make us think of the vessels used in in the Old Testament that were that were made holy. They were sanctified for use in the worship of God. They were not to be used for common things. They were made holy. They were set apart for a particular purpose, to be used for the glory of God, for His worship and to praise Him and adore Him. Sexual immorality and impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you, Paul says. It's not proper for those who have been born again to indulge in this type of of sinful lifestyle. These sins mentioned here uh, were so prevalent in pagan society and within uh, the city of Ephesus where this letter was originally sent. Um, These sins also are related, as we will see shortly, with idolatry Uh, there's there's a connection that paul makes here that i think that that we need to be cognizant of that they're related to idolatry and and this idol worship indulging in this sexual immorality was very very prevalent in the city of ephesus and much of the world at this time if you remember back in acts chapter 19 uh I, i i believe we've read that recently But we read about a a riot in Ephesus in the last part of of chapter 19 of Acts. Paul had been preaching the word there in Ephesus, and God's word was accomplishing what it was sent forth to accomplish. Uh, Men and women were being made alive uh, by the preaching of the word of God, and a change had been wrought within them. A great number were turning from their idolatrous ways, And along with that went the practices that they had been accustomed to and taking part in. These new converts had even gathered together and they had burned their books which contained their, their pagan practices and magic arts as we read in chapter 19. But then Luke tells us in chapter 19 verse 20 that the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily if there's ever going to be a change it's going to be a change based on the word of god and that is what was happening there in in Acts 19 and this caused a loss of income for some of those who their their occupations were centered around this idolatrous worship this sexual immorality this 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 pagan worship and especially with the the goddess Diana or Artemis and it was it was characteristic of those lives that were taking part in that idolatrous worship, that they would be involved in sexual immorality. And as the word of the Lord began to prevail and hearts began to be made alive, and the word of the Lord was being preached, these people who were making money off the occupation, they started to have problems with this. They were losing money. And they started a riot there in Ephesus. And that's the same city that Paul writes his letter to that we're we're studying now. I fear that we're in a very similar situation today. If you look around us, uh, and because of that, I think that we need to pay really close attention to what Paul has to say to us here. Paul Paul then goes on in verse 4 to build upon this. And he states, "...let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving." Do you remember what Christ said in Luke 6? Luke 6, 43 through 44. These things that Paul is talking about here in verse 4 have to do with our speech. Uh, filthiness, foolish talk, crude joking. Christ in, in Luke six forty three says, For no good tree bears... Bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit for each tree is known by its own fruit, for figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The person out of a good out of the good treasure of his, his heart produces good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. Listen to what he says here: for out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks out of the abundance of his heart. His mouth speaks. Paul is telling the Ephesians, don't let this type of talk be your practice. Your old dead heart has been replaced with a new heart. You've been born again. You've been given new life. You've been redeemed. This type of talk, this this crude and foolish speaking should not be characteristic of the new man because the new man has a new heart. These are characteristics of the old man and out of the abundance of the old man's heart, this type of speech comes forth. Instead, Paul says, let our speech be characterized by thanksgiving. Isn't that a contrast? Crude, lewd, filthy speech versus thanksgiving. What a contrast there is there. This new heart is to be overflowing with praise. And praise for what? For the gift of God's grace. For the gift of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone. This is what should come out of the heart of one who has been redeemed. One who has had grace lavished upon them. Isn't that what Paul said earlier in Ephesians? He's lavished His grace upon us. One who was, even while dead in trespasses and sins, made alive. What is there left but thanksgiving to come out of the heart of one who has experienced such a thing? So let thanksgiving be your talk. Let it be that which flows naturally from your lips. This is what is fitting and proper for the saints of the Lord. These things mentioned in verse 3 and 4 are descriptions of the old man and the passions of those dead to God. Alienated from God, they're they're what flows out of the life of one who is still in the flesh. And then in verse 5, Paul repeats himself for emphasis and he attaches a warning to what he is saying. In verse 5 he says, For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no interest, or excuse me, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ in God. Paul is saying this is a fact, this, this is a truth. Those who practice these things have no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ in God. It's interesting to see covetousness is linked twice here in verses 3 and verse 5 with the sins of immorality. Paul even clarifies what this sin of covetousness actually is and what the root of that sin uh, and what the root is that's behind it. Look again at verse 5. He says that, uh, or who is covetous, that is an idolater. At the very heart of the sin of covetousness is, have, is wanting or desire or, or looking to, to have that which you don't already have or that which is not yours. In fact, the, the heart of covetousness is idolatry. It is placing yourself above others, your desires being more important than the desires of others. It's the creature saying to the Creator... I want what you have not given me. It's putting my will above the will of the Creator. My desires over the desires of God for what I have or don't have. It's idolatry. It's worshiping self and putting self-gratification as that person's God. As a thing to be sought after of supreme importance even over above what the Creator says is important for you. Well, this idolatry rules in the hearts of men and women who are lost. They'll worship anything but God. The lost man will worship anything but God, and if they have nothing else to worship, they'll worship themselves. That's idolatry. This is not the case, though, for those who have been redeemed from the power of sin and death. So Paul warns his readers and his listeners that They may be certain of that, of this, that, that those who practice these things have no inheritance. They have no place in Christ's kingdom. I think we have to pause for a moment and be very thankful, though, that what Paul means here is that this is the case for those who, lives li- who live lives who are continuously involved in this type of behavior, or that is the practice of their life in general. There's not a single child of Adam. <laughs> who hasn't at one time or another fallen into these sins, which would make us guilty, which does make us guilty. And if this was characterized as having done this sin one time, we would all be without any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ or God. So what we see here is Paul is saying that this cannot be a continued pattern or a consistent thing or a a pattern of life in a believer the christian has been forgiven this is this is a let let our let our conversation let our let our talk let that which flows out of our mouth be thankfulness what do we have to be thankful for our sins have been forgiven this is a most miraculous thing our sins have been forgiven washed away by the precious blood of Jesus Christ and been given the spirit that leads us to repentance when we fall into sins such as these. You remember the Samaritan woman at Jacob's well? You remember that that uh, historical account there? This woman had lived, a, this woman had lived a, a lifestyle that was characterized by these types of sins, hadn't she? She had lived this lifestyle. Same lifestyle that's detailed for us in verses three and five. But Christ met this woman there at the well. Providential meeting. And he meets this woman and something changes in this woman. That this was once her lifestyle. But he did a work in her. And we read further on in that account in John 4.39 that many Samaritans from the town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. Something radical had happened in this woman's life. What was her testimony before? If you read the commentaries on that passage of Scripture, you will often find commented that this woman was going to the well at that time of day because she wasn't accepted to be there because of her lifestyle by the, at the times that most women would come to this well. She was an outcast because of her sexual immorality, even in a place where sexual immorality was not uh, held in, in such a, a negative view, but yet the state of her life had, that had so consumed her that she wasn't even accepted. And yet Jesus meets her there. And we all know the story of this. But something changes in her that almost immediately what she bears witness of is totally opposite of that which she bore witness of before. That many came to Christ on account of her testimony, of her witness. Something had changed. Many Samaritans of that town believed in Christ, because of that woman's testimony. What about David? Do we see an example of this type of sexually immoral, sexual immorality, idolatry, covetousness in the life of David? David stayed at home when it was the time of year, spring, the time of year when the kings went to battle. This was the time appointed for them to do such, and he stayed at home. And the sin of immorality and covetousness overcame him. He desired what wasn't his and he lied and even murdered to cover up that sin. Putting his will above the will of the creator. What is that? That is idolatry. Do you see how Paul links here idolatry and covetousness with the sins of sexual immorality? But thanks be to God, there is forgiveness for sin. Even sin such as David had. In 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9 through 11, there are some of these sins of sexual immorality listed here in this letter to the church at Corinth from Paul. He says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. He's saying this once again. Don't be deceived by this. You know this for sure. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. Does that sound familiar? Sounds just like what he says in Ephesus. But... Here's the forgiveness. But you were washed, you were sanctified, and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. There is forgiveness of sin. So what Paul is saying again here is that those who live their lives according to this pattern or continue to do so have no part in the kingdom And he warns the body of believers here in Ephesus that these sins cannot and will not be the pattern for them. If a Christian falls into this type of sin, the Holy Spirit leads that one to repentance, just as he led David to repentance. And we have the greatest psalm of contrition in Psalm 51, written by David after he was approached by Nathan the prophet regarding his sin, leading him to repentance. But here is the warning that those who practice these things will have no part in the kingdom. In Revelation 21, John is recording for us the vision that he has been given to see of the new Jerusalem, and he is describing the greatness and the beauty of this this city. And in Revelation chapter 21 in 22 through 27, let me just turn there real quick. Revelation 22, excuse me, 20, uh, 21, verse 22 through, through 27. He says, And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of the sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it, it, gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk and the kings of earth will bring their glory into it and its gates will never be shut by day and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of nations. But listen, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. And he says, down just a little bit further, he describes that who that anyone is from verse 27 of the passage we just read. Look at verse 14 and 15 of Revelation 22. As he's summing up everything here after he sees this vision, he says, Blessed are those who wash their robes. Now go back to something that we've dealt with before, but how are these robes washed? They're washed in the blood of the Lamb. That's how they're made white. They're washed in the blood of the Lamb. Made white with the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside, here is the anyone that he was talking about earlier. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. Brothers and sisters, Paul and John are telling us the same exact thing. Those who live in this way, whose lives are summarized in this type of sin. Those who continue to live in these sins have no part, they have no place, they have no inheritance in the kingdom. Paul goes on in verse 6, let no one deceive you with empty words. Back in Ephesians 5, verse 6, let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Here we see Paul providing another word of warning. There's to be no softening of what sin is. There's to be no justifying or downplaying what sin is. We will not minimize sin. The world calls evil good and good evil. That's what the world does. It's often the case that the world... And the flesh seek to minimize sin. Sin that we see in society and sin that we see in our own lives. The world, the flesh, and the devil would obscure sin so it's not recognized as such. How many times do we see the world trying to put makeup on sin? Trying to put sin in a light that makes it not so bad. Justifying sin. Unfortunately, there are way too many people. There are way too many people in the professing church. Men standing up behind a pulpit, and even in some cases, women calling themselves pastors who stand up in the pulpit and they're seeking to justify sinful behavior. Right now, what do we see? They're seeking to justify sexually immoral behavior. This is those who call themselves Christians. Don't be deceived. Don't be deceived. Paul says, Let no one deceive you with empty words. This is the same Paul, the apostle, according to the will of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle by Christ himself, who placed an anathema on those who would preach another gospel. Let them be accursed, Paul said. Paul knew that there were those who would preach contrary to the gospel that Christ gave to him. Those who would make sin to be a little thing. They would minimize sin. They would would talk about sin in a way and even make it seem as if the sinfulness itself was holy and righteous. What do we see today? It's the same thing Paul was seeing in his day. Let no one deceive you. Don't be fooled by the world. Don't be fooled by the enemy. Don't even be fooled by those who disguise themselves as servants of light. Paul says in Second Corinthians 11, verse 13 and 15, For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. And then he says, so it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Isn't this what Satan did in the garden? Isn't that what he did? When he came to Eve in Genesis 3, verse 4, it's recorded for us, but the serpent serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. Now, what was he talking about there? God had forbidden Adam to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. In the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And along comes Satan, deceiving, minimizing. You'll not surely die. It's not going to happen to you. You'll not die. Words were empty. They were vain. For the moment that Adam ate of the tree he immediately died spiritually. They knew that they were naked. And from that moment on, he began to die physically as well. Satan and his messengers and all those who are under his sway would still to this day say the same thing. When they approach us or tempt us to sin, you will not surely die. It's not that bad. Downplay it. Think about this. How many times has Satan or one of his his servants or even our own flesh said to ourselves, I've committed this sin before. I didn't die. It's not that bad. How many times has that happened in your life? Justifying sinful behavior. Downplaying it. Look at society. Don't you see this all around us? Look, look at what society has propagated through Darwinism over many, many years. Well, we've just all descended from animals. We've just all, all been you know, uh, evolved from, from different animals or, or came from monkeys or amoebas or whatever it is in the, in the very beginning. So it's not really sin that you're committing. Sin's not that bad a thing. It's, it's just animal instincts. That's all it is. Just natural urges. All the time throwing sin in the face of their actual creator. This is what society does. Paul says that those words are empty. They're vain. They have no truth in them. For the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. upon those who live in these sins. In particular, in this passage, the sins of immorality and, and covetousness and idolatry. I know we've looked at this before, but let's turn really quickly to Romans. Let me show you what this is here. Romans 1, 18-32, "...for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven," "...against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain, because God has shown it to them for His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so that they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged. Here is idolatry. And then I want you to see what it leads to. Do not be deceived. Paul says the wrath of God is come upon the sons of disobedience. Idolatry. Right here. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, strife, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossipers, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, Foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. They know not God's righteous decree. They, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. How did this passage start? For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. What does Paul tell us? Paul tells us, That because of this, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. What do we see here? But the same thing in maybe an expanded form here in Ephesians of what Paul tells us in Romans. The wrath of God is revealed against those who practice such things. And what is it in that passage in Romans that leads to these sins? It's idolatry. Idolatry. And then what is born out of this idolatry? All manner of sinful desires. Immorality. Men and women ruled by the less of the flesh, dishonoring their bodies because of their idolatry. Unnatural relations which the world wants to deceive you and call good. Don't be deceived by empty words. A debased mind will surround sin with empty words to try and make that sin acceptable. It will never be acceptable to God. Turn with me once more to Revelation. I want to show you something. Revelation chapter 2. Some of you will remember when we went through the seven letters to the seven churches in Asia Minor. Look at the church to Ephesus and look in particular at Revelation 2, verse 6. Christ tells the church here, he has John write this letter to the church, to the angel of the church, the pastor of the church. He says in verse 6, Yet this you have. This is a commendation from Christ to the church at Ephesus. Yet this you have. You hate the work of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. And then in the letter to the church at Pergamum, in Revelation 2, verses 14, But I have a few things against you. Now, not a word of commendation, like he had for the church at Ephesus, but a word of condemnation to the church at Pergamum. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also, along that same line, Christ tells this church You have some, some within the church at Pergamum, who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. And then he says, therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against you with the sword of my mouth. We don't know much about the Nicolaitans. But what we have recorded here and a few other sources, extra biblical sources, leads us to believe that this was a sect that practiced all kinds of sexual immorality, even somewhat possibly in the name of Christ Himself. In the letter to the church at Ephesus, in Revelation, the Lord commends the church for hating the works of this group. Maybe they listened to what Paul told them here in Ephesians 5. Maybe they listened to Him as he warned the church not to be deceived by those who would make it seem as if sin was good. And it appears that some may have been deceived in the church there in Pergamum because there were some in the church who held to the teaching of this group. And they had failed to do what Christ said to the Ephesian church that the Ephesian church had done. Look at Revelation 2.2. I know your works your toil and your patient endurance and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested. But have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. The church there in Ephesus was not deceived by these. Don't be deceived by empty words. Paul goes on in verse 7 and 8. Therefore, do not be partakers with them, for at one time you were darkness, and now are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Do not become, taker, become partakers with those who are involved in these sins, Paul says. Hate what Christ hates. We should seek to uphold what the church in Ephesus was declared to do there in Revelation 2. You hate the work of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Hate that which Christ hates. Do not partner with those who do the things that Christ hates. First Corinthians fifteen thirty three through thirty four says, "Do not be deceived. Bad company runs good morals. Bad company runs good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor." as is right, and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. We are so prone to mimic those that are around us. Don't take part. Don't be partners with those who practice these sins. We're so prone to become desensitized To sin. To prevalent sins in our society, but even worse, to prevalent sins in the lives of those around us that we do things with. Remember Psalm 1, and hopefully we'll get there eventually in this series where I want to tie in Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly. Don't be partakers with them. Don't become partners with those who commit these types of sin. This is why it is so important that we spend time with the people of God. The body, those who are united, lifting one another up, supporting and being accountable to each other as we are to be, as we have already seen from Ephesians. Do you begin to see how this whole letter just fits together? There's so many different things that Paul is dealing with. Theological things, things of practice. But it's one theme. It's it's one message for us. 2 Corinthians 6, 14 through the beginning of the next chapter says, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with unrighteousness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Baliel? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has a temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk with them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst. And be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you and I will be a father to you and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Since we have these promises beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of the body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Be separate. Or as Paul states it here in our letter, Do not become partakers with them. These are lives, these are systems, these are foundations that cannot be mixed together. It can't be. They cannot exist together. You cannot serve two masters, you can't live in the kingdom of Christ and in the kingdom of this world. Things don't work that way. 1 Corinthians 6 verse 15 says, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee. Remember the sins that Paul is dealing with right here? He says in this passage, in, 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 that flee from sexual immorality. Flee from it. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? Whom you have from God, you are not your own. You're not your own. You were bought with a price. And what was that price? Christ Jesus in his blood bought you For a price, you are not your own. So glorify God in your body. Have no part. Do not become partakers with them who live this type of lifestyle. Flee from them. Why? Because you were darkness. That is where you came from. But now... You are light in the Lord, so walk in light. Walk in light. The glorious light of the gospel of Jesus Christ has shined in your life. Don't go back to darkness. Have no part of it. Walk in the light. Christ is our light. Walk in Him. Would you love the sin That nailed your Savior to the cross? Would you want that to be characteristic of your life? Flee from that sin. Walk in the light as children of light. Do you see what's been done for you? Do you see that? You had a heart of stone. Ezekiel 36, 37, one of my favorite passages. In Ezekiel 36, He took out that heart of stone. He did that for us and gave us a heart of flesh. We were dead and He made us alive. Lost in sin, without hope, without God in the world, and Christ Jesus died that the Father might be our father. We were clothed in filthy, dirty, rotten rags. And he took that robe upon him and gave us the robe of his righteousness. And would we now go back to wearing a robe of rags? Look at all he's done for us. Delivered us out of this kingdom of darkness. You were once darkness. And he's transferred us into the kingdom of Christ, the kingdom of light. Into the very kingdom that those who practice these sins he's talking about, he tells us have no inheritance in this kingdom. We've been translated from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of darkness of light. Paul stated in the start of his more practical portion of this letter in Ephesians 4.1 I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you, urge you, I plead with you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Now we're told walk in the light as children of light. There's something, and I, I hope we have more time to get to this because we're out of time. But there's something that keeps on coming up in Paul's letter here about walk. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Walk in light. In verse 2 of chapter 5, he says, and walk in love. And then down in verse 15, he says, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but wise. So be careful how you walk. Walk in wisdom. Walk worthy. Walk in love. Walk in wisdom and walk in light. I'll pray God will bring us back together so we can look at this as we continue through Ephesians. But there's no doubt that what Paul is showing us here is that there is a radical experiential change in the one who has been made alive. Salvation isn't just a a knowledge of a set of rules. It's not knowledge of doctrine. It's not knowledge of theology. Those things are great. I love... Theology. I love the great doctrines of the Bible, but that's not salvation. All these things are important, but salvation is a change in the being of a person. It truly is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, the new has come. It's a radical change in opposition to that which we once were, to that which we now are. We were darkness, but now are light in the Lord. This is something experienced, something life-changing. And it's all of, by, and through God who has saved us by His grace. Through faith, not a result of works You see, this living to God that Paul is describing in this last part of Ephesians is not for obtaining salvation. You are not good enough to obtain salvation. You do not measure up. I don't care how good you are. You don't measure up. But isn't this what society tells us today? You're good. You're good. You're beautiful. You're good enough. Find it in yourself. You're perfect just the way you are. That's not what the Do you see the deception that Paul is talking about? Don't be deceived. You're not good enough. You don't have it in and of yourself. You can't fight this battle. Christ has fought the battle and been victorious. And the Holy Spirit has been given to us to enable us, to give us power. You don't do these things. You don't live this life to receive salvation. You live this life as a result of your salvation and the indwelling and the power of the Holy Spirit. Don't get that twisted. Can't live to God if you're dead to God. Can't do it. If there's any here that haven't experienced this new life. Pray that God the Holy Spirit might cause you to see your need. See that you can't do it and draw you to Christ where you might find rest for your soul, life, and light. And for those of us who have experienced this salvation, who have been redeemed, who have been brought into the family and made members of the one body, pray that we find even more grace and power through the Holy Spirit to walk as children of light. Glorify our God and Father to the praise and the glory of Jesus Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit. Now let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for what you have done for us. Thank you for your sacrifice. Thank you for your life. Thank you for the payment for sin that Christ made on our behalf we could never hope to pay. Lord, we're thankful for Your salvation. Lord, help us to honor You. Help us to love You more. Help us to share what what an amazing salvation there is to be found in Christ. Lord, give us grace, give us strength, give us discernment, give us wisdom. Lord, help us to walk worthy of our calling. Help us to walk in love. Help us to walk in wisdom. And help us to walk as children of light. As we've been removed from that kingdom of darkness and placed in the kingdom of light, Lord, help us to walk in in that manner. Lord, bring us back again. Lord, bless each one that's here. We thank You and praise You. It's in Your Son's name we pray. Amen.